Hello, subscribers and new listeners. This is Dr. Eric Spann bringing you your weekend update edition of The Bleeding Edge from What's Up, Doc. This update will take care of the new information about our Twin Lakes and White River watershed update for Stone, Baxter, Independence, Sharp, Fulton, and Izzard counties. So to get quickly to it, the Stone County update is in 24 hours, we've had no new cases. In the last 14 days, we've had 22 out of our 59 total cases over the entire four-month pandemic. We have had 45 of 59 patients recover with 13 active cases. The trends are that about 35% of our cases for the four months have occurred in the last two weeks, but the spike seems to be leveling off. We've only had one death in Stone County with none in the last three weeks. And we're still doing well, but we need to all continue to keep our guard up for the next few weeks, especially as the kids get ready to go back to school. Baxter County, over the last 24 hours, has had four cases. They've had 52 of 68 recover with 16 active cases in their county. And over the last 14 days, they have had 20 of their 68 cases for the entire pandemic with about 30 percent of those cases. If you think about it, all of us are experiencing an uptick right now. And over a period where we have two weeks out of 16 weeks, that is about 10 percent of our time or less. So. We've had no deaths in Baxter County, thankfully, and for 40,000 people and 12,000 or more seniors, that is just wonderful news. Independence County, they've had uh, 20 cases over the last 24 hours, and they've recovered 222 out of their total 433 cases. They have 210 active cases, and over the last 14 days, they've had 303 out of 433 cases with a major spike ongoing and 70% of their pandemic cases over the last two weeks. They finally had a death, sadly, in Independence County, and that was over the last four days. They're still averaging about 20 new cases a day, up from 14 cases a day over the prior two weeks. Izzard County has had no new cases in the last 24 and even 48 hours. They've recovered 34 out of their total 45 cases with 10 active cases. Over the last 14 days, they've had 16 of their total 45 cases, with about 35% of their total pandemic cases over the last two weeks, which is an increase, but they seem to be leveling off hopefully as well. Sharp County has had no cases over the last day, with 85 of 106 recovered, and only 16 active cases, with 26 out of their total 106 cases during the four-month pandemic over the last two weeks. So about 25% of their total pandemic cases, and they're not spiking as high as the rest of our service region. They again had five total deaths, and that occurred over four to six weeks ago, mostly in a nursing home in a single early outbreak in May with the nursing home staff and nursing home residents. Fulton County has had one case over the last 24 hours. They've recovered 25 out of their 30 cases with only five active cases. They've had nine of their cases in the last two weeks out of a total of 30 over the entire pandemic which, like most of the rest of our region, is about 30% of the total pandemic cases in the last two weeks. They've had no deaths, thankfully, in Fulton County. As we move on, think about this. That means in our region, we have had 463 out of 741 cases recovered. 
That means we have 270 active cases. But 78% of those active cases right now are concentrated in Independence County with all other counties. Overall, the last 24 hours has been relatively stable. We're seeing a slight decrease, and we hope that continues. We've increased about 100 cases over the last four to five days, nearly all of those in Independence County. And I apologize uh, as I go through some of the, the records for hospital bed availability, et cetera. I have been unable, despite multiple attempts, to get any information out of the hospital in Independence County. We're seeing a significant uptick in cases in the region over the last two weeks. But we've increased our testing, as I said before, five to tenfold over the last two months. So our rate of cases in our region with our four hospitals, is about 700 cases per 100,000 people, which is still significantly less than the rest of the United States, although Arkansas has had uh, itself uh, seen as a hot spot over the last six weeks especially. The trends in our region, bed availability is still over 35%. ICU availability is still over 30%. Thankfully, ventilator capacity is well over 90%. Now to the day's news. I reviewed the Wall Street Journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Wall Street Journal, as well as several other journal synthesis uh, groups, and I have the following to report to you going into the weekend. The three drug makers, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer, are all in the active process in the uh, second and third stage trials that will hopefully lead to vaccines by November or December, with vaccines that appear to be reasonably priced uh, due to government regulations and assistance at about $10 to $74 for a one- or two-dose series. In the same Wall Street Journal this morning, it's been shown that the U.S. dependence on foreign drug production has been laid bare with uh, 70 percent of our acetaminophen coming from China and 70 percent or more of the heparin, amoxicillin, ciprofloxacin, and valsartan, which is a blood pressure drug coming from China. And it was discussed that 80 percent of the ingredients that India, who is a major worldwide generic producer, the ingredients that they use are actually from China. So if you look at the uh, uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredients industry, over 50% of the world's active pharmaceutical ingredients, or API, come from China. Now, their exports fell significantly in the early part of the pandemic, as much as 70% per month, but that has been improved. And there are bills right now in the Congress to restore the United States API industry so that we can have those active pharmaceutical ingredients. Now, one exception is Johnson & Johnson, which makes 100% of their ingredients and their Tylenol brand name to acetaminophen in the United States. And, of course, their demand has gone up significantly. Expect prices to go up slightly as we bring our generic production and our pharmaceutical ingredients home, but it will be well worth it the next time we get a new uh, novel uh, virus of influenza or some other respiratory infection from Southeast Asia. So three articles today from the Synthesis Journal, Journal Watch, from the New England Journal of Medicine. Number one is, what role do children play? And this was published in the Pediatrics Journal on May the 26th, 2020. And I'll, I'll break this down for you, hopefully, in less than a minute. A study uh, done in the Journal of Pediatrics on May the 26th revealed that children rarely were the index case or likely vector for household spread of SARS-CoV-2 infections or the virus that produces coronavirus COVID-19 disease. Particularly young children seem to be relatively unaffected. 
The findings included that of 39 children, 74% were previously healthy, 18% required hospitalization, and none required intensive care unit admission. Average age was 11 years. Cough was the most common symptom, followed by fever, cough at 82%, fever 67 nasal discharge 64%, and abdominal pain in less than 30%. Although this study was small, the finding that children likely were not the initial cases in most households is important and adds to the growing body of evidence that SARS-CoV-2 virus is not transmitted like influenza and other respiratory viruses where children are often the index case in a household. And this is one of the things I've retracted because I treated this very much like novel influenza based on my 2009 experience, and I'll try not to make that mistake again. These findings, according to the authors, should be somewhat reassuring as we make decisions about reopening schools in the fall. Now, an interesting study that came out of the Nature Medicine Journal was the prominence of the loss of smell and taste as really solid indicators. This was published in July uh, 2020, and I read, The loss of smell and taste were much more common in participants who were, and I won't explain this antibody study, positive tested than those who were negative. Particularly, fatigue and skip meals were common symptoms, but when you reduce this down to the symptoms that were most predictive, the loss of smell and taste were 78% specific. A predictive model had a sensitivity of 65%. Sensitivity in medical studies means that if you have the symptom, it predicts a 65% probability. So this test was a little more specific to rule out than it was sensitive to rule people in to being COVID-19 positive. The summary statement is that, however, one-third of people with COVID-19 do not report these symptoms, but it, and just like one other study that I've quoted this week, is that a very solid study was done that shows that the three major symptoms of coronavirus-19, COVID-19 disease from the SARS-CoV-2 virus are fever, cough with or without shortness of breath, and loss of smell and or taste. Finally, a study that was just published over the last couple of weeks, and many medications are being tested, and there are many uh, myths and, and sadly even conspiracy theories out there about these medications. This regards the, the body's reaction to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19. This study was that dexamethasone is shown to be the first drug to actually lower mortality in people with COVID-19. Now, I, I think that probably is going to shock some of you as much research and as many shares and as many forwards as people get. This is the actual first study. This is produced by the New England Journal of Medicine, published July the 17th, and I read as follows. People who were not on oxygen did not benefit from dexamethasone and might have actually experienced harm. However, because patients with severe COVID-19 often have excess inflammation, what many of you have heard of as the cytokine storm, intense interest has been centered on whether anti-inflammatory medications such as glucocorticoids or steroids, we call them commonly, have a role in managing COVID-19 disease. In this study called the recovery trial, the mortality within 28 days was lower statistically significantly with dexamethasone than without it. Now, across the board, that was a 3% reduction in mortality. But there are more important statistics as you see the different patients that dexamethasone was tested in. So, for example, among patients receiving mechanical ventilation at enrollment, dexamethasone recipients had substantially lower mortality 
than usual care recipients. In other words, those who had to be put on a ventilator were much more likely to improve. And that was at a rate of 29% mortality versus 41. Folks, that's the difference between 11 people out of 100 dying versus with it than without it. So uh, also among patients who were not receiving supplemental oxygen, dexamethasone conferred no benefit over usual care. So what you're beginning to see here is the sicker you are, the more help that these anti-inflammatory drugs are. Lastly, uh, there are other drugs that are in uh, study. Uh, one of the comments that the authors made is that ambulatory patients not requiring oxygen should not receive dexamethasone. This is very similar to the comments that Dr. Fauci and everybody else has made and that I've synthesized for you about hydroxychloroquine. If you're not significantly ill and if you don't need to be in the hospital, you probably don't need any drug to treat you because you're going to respond well to this. Nevertheless, the authors state, the findings support an emerging paradigm for how different therapies affect COVID-19. For example, the antiviral remdesivir is most beneficial in people with severe COVID-19 who are not yet critically ill, kind of like hydroxychloroquine, as another study suggests. Those are my comments, not the authors. The authors reference remdesivir there. They go on to say, suggesting that there is an important role for viral replication in the disease stage that remdesivir affects in, and that's early in the disease that's going to become severe. Now, they go on to say, by contrast, dexamethasone's largest effect in critically ill people or is in critically ill people would suggest that excess inflammation drives much of the damage at this stage. Now, I want to make a comment about this. The first principle that we're taught from uh, the great Greek uh, physician Hippocrates, of which the Hippocratic Oath is taken, is that the first responsibility of a physician is to do no harm. Now, that first do no harm principle means that we shouldn't apply therapy that we don't know will have a positive effect based on evidence. Now, if we have a benefit greater than risk, that's a reasonable thing to do for a patient. But we as physicians and scientists have to deal with what we know. And so much of this is unknown. And just now, on August the, the 8th, 2020, what are we seeing? We're seeing the first study that says the first drug shown and proven to lower mortality in people with COVID-19. And that is why we ask for patients. That's why we ask for people who don't uh, read the studies and understand how to um, inculcate and how to interpret medical studies. Try to avoid commenting or sharing things that, that sound too good to be true. Now, my final comment is going to be two things about uh, the Two things about the death rates or mortality rates with COVID. Many of us have said that when the, the all the tale is told, that the death rates for COVID are going to very likely be much like influenza. And, and that is based on the fact that we know that we don't even know how many people have the disease yet. In other words, we have no denominator. If we say that two people out of 100 die from a disease, that means we have to know how many die and how many had the disease. We don't know how many people have the disease. So we lean on studies that are done in populations. And there was a very good one published from the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which we have leaned on in medicine for 100 years, published just a few days ago on July the 24th. And this is a study done in Indiana on a huge group of people. And I read from Dr. Stephen G. Baum, MD. Random testing yields much higher estimates of prevalence than estimates based on non-random testing or on reported cases. 
The absence of universal COVID testing, he states, in the U.S. makes it impossible to establish the prevalence and mortality rates of SARS-CoV-2 infection in various geographic locations in the nation as a whole. Why? Because we don't know how many people actually have the disease. We only know how many are in the hospital or have a positive test who go for care or who have died. And the bulleted evidence that he yields states this. Overall, the prevalence of positivity confirmed by, I won't use the the term, but basically the kind of testing that we do to prove whether someone has the genetic information from SARS-CoV-2, that testing that we do that's reliable showed that 1.74% of an entire population of 187,802 Indiana residents was positive. Among the group that was positive, that was randomly tested, 44% were entirely asymptomatic. This was 17 times higher among household contacts than among non-household contacts, 34% versus about 2%. He goes on to say, estimates of prevalence based on this study were, of those 187,000 residents, about, which was 2.8% of the entire Indiana population, that the number of actual infections was 9.6 times higher than that of confirmed cases, and the infection mortality rate was 0.58%, which is much, much lower than the 15 to 3.5% estimates even used by the Epidemiology Department in Arkansas or anywhere else in the country, and certainly that that's touted by the media. His final comment was, this study clearly suggests that actual testing reveals a much higher prevalence of infection than does estimated prevalence from reported cases, and this allows for accurate case fatality measurement. That's a big study. That's important, and I think you're going to see these numbers continue to drop the more cases we find out are asymptomatic, which leads me to my final uh, article today from John Miltimore in The Catalyst. Uh, but first, I want to to make a comment. I've been looking at Sweden for the last two months because uh, the, today's Wall Street Journal talked about the Swedish economic model and what they had done in their country. What has interested me for the last two weeks is that there were zero or only one death in the entire country of 10 million people more commonly than any other number of deaths. They have had a total of 20 deaths in the last two weeks in that entire country. And their economy has done much better than any country around them and most of the countries in Europe. Their death rate and infection rate is even better than Australia's for the last two weeks. And Australia, if any of you have ever traveled there, is some of the most restrictive quarantine and immigration uh, uh, standards that there are. Now, with Sweden, many said that Sweden was insane with their policies that they had. And I'll explain their policies. Because they didn't like the political implications of the no-shutdown economy during an election year, personal responsibility, freedom, a lack of bondage to fear, and every major metropolitan newspaper and elitist magazine on the east and west coast shredded Sweden for what they called its irresponsibility and for committing the seemingly unforgivable sin of not becoming a nanny state. Now, those are my comments, but John Miltimore says this in The Catalyst. Sweden, despite becoming a lightning rod, famously has taken a totally different approach compared to its Nordic neighbors in trying to contain the spread of the novel coronavirus. The Swedish strategy allowed people to keep living largely as normal, but stores and restaurants remained open, as did many schools. 
Hawkins Samuelson, the CEO of Volvo Cars, observed in April, our measures are all based on individuals taking responsibility, which is an important part of the Swedish model. Sweden's approach of encouraging social distancing by giving responsibility to individuals may very well explain why the Swedes fared so much better than New York, where authorities disempowered individual actors and prevented nursing homes from taking sensible precautions, he states. He states Sweden's actual pandemic performance compared to what's been in the New York Times, and they use Sweden as a what they call a cautionary tale, and I'll, I'll make more comments that I've read from him. He says Sweden has become a global lightning rod, but this has less to do with the results of its policies as compared to the nature of its policies. While Sweden's death toll is indeed substantially higher at this point than its neighbors, such as Finland, Norway, and Denmark, by the way, all of them are having as many or more deaths now as Sweden is, it's also much lower than several European neighbors such as Belgium, the United Kingdom, Italy, and Spain. Indeed, he says a simple comparison between Belgium and Sweden, nations with very similar populations, reveals that Belgium suffered far worse than Sweden from the coronavirus, both economically and medically. The reason Sweden is a, quote, cautionary tale, according to the New York Times, he states, and that Belgium is not is because Belgium followed the script. Early in the pandemic, Belgian officials closed all non-essential businesses and enforced strict social distancing rules. All non-emergency workers were told to stay home. Shopping was limited to a single family member. Individuals could leave their homes only for medical reasons or to walk a pet or get a brief bit of exercise, he states, so long as they maintain social distancing. Miltimore states these lockdown protocols, the BBC reported, were strictly enforced by Belgian police, even using drones in parks and fines for anyone breaking social distancing rules. Miltimore offers a more suitable, what he calls, cautionary tale. Sweden clearly endured the pandemic better than Belgium, which has nearly twice as many COVID deaths despite its economic lockdown. Yet the New York Times, he states, chose Sweden as its, quote, cautionary tale because Sweden chose not to institute an economic lockdown. Sweden took an approach for two reasons that was different from the rest of its neighbors. Anders Tegnell, which is Sweden's Anthony Fauci, publicly stated, he said there is little or no evidence scientifically to support lockdowns working. Second, he states, as evidence today shows, lockdowns come with widespread unintended consequences, such as mass unemployment, recession, social unrest, psychological deterioration, suicides, and drug overdoses. Miltimore comments that it's a mistake to label Sweden's approach a failure at this point. As noted above, Sweden has been criti- criticized widely. Uh, less because of its results of their public health policies and more because of the nature of them. He states, by embracing a much more market-based approach to the pandemic in lieu of a centrally planned one, which is socialism, Sweden is undermining the narrative that millions and millions of people would have died without lockdowns, as modelers predicted. In other words, it disagrees with socialism. But they may have had the best plan, he states, all along, finding a balance between personal responsibility rather than government coercion, fiscal responsibility instead of capitulation, and public health policy and safety getting through this thing once and for all. One lesson is clear. And these are my comments. Sometimes it's better to take your medicine early, making people responsible for themselves, giving them the freedoms guaranteed under our Constitution and realize that we can't prevent risk and that sheep are the dumbest animals in the world because they don't think for themselves. They just follow. Flattening the curve also means lengthening it. As Robert Katz, a doctor and founder of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, states, 
Flattening the curve means you don't prevent deaths, you just change their dates. Folks, we can't fear our way out of this or give over our lives to the state. We've got to be responsible for ourselves while being respectful of our government, being good citizens and good neighbors. That's my story today, and I'm sticking to it, and I hope this helps you deal with all of the information in the media, and you will not hear any of this there as you go into this weekend, and I'll see you back here on What's Up, Doc, on Monday. Thanks. (laughs) Ha ha! Woo!